What time are you getting here next week? Oh, you gotta, you got to know that faster than that. What time are you getting here next week? 9 o'clock. And where are you going? Main service over there. 9 o'clock over there. That's all you got to remember. Okay? 9 o'clock over there. And <clears throat> I know this is never going to happen. But let's say you oversleep. And it's, you think, oh, I missed first service. So now I'm coming late. And I'm going to come at 1040. Where are you going to go? Wrong. You're going to go to the main service. But don't do that, okay? Wait, I don't want you just sleeping in and then coming to Boundless afterwards. That's going to be the great temptation, right? It's just like, I'm going to sleep in, and then I can always catch Boundless and see my friends. Don't do that. If you happen to sleep, don't sleep in, number one. But if you happen to sleep in, feel like First John 2, you know, I don't want you to sin, but if you sin, right? <laughs> there is an advocate. Uh, I don't want you to sleep in, but if you sleep in, go to the main service. Don't come to Boundless, that, right? So that's priorities. Corporate gathering is, is more important than, uh, than our sub-ministry here. All right? Make sense? I'll repeat that. You'll probably get sick of hearing me say that, but that's going to be the great, uh, the great temptation is to, to just come to Boundless if you, if you oversleep. All right? Well, yeah, like Isaac said, I just want to extend gratitude on behalf of me and Mary and uh, our little kiddos for all the help you guys have put in over the last few weeks at the house. And, um, man, it really expedited that, that project for sure. So um, we got our first coat on, like, all of the downstairs, which, those of you who painted, you know how, how much that is. <laughs> it's a lot of, lot, of, lot of surface area. So appreciate that. And, um, We've kind of, I think, pretty much done with the second coat now at this point. So, uh, for the most part, so we've got trim left and a few other things. So we're come moving right along. So I, I'm really appreciative of that. And uh, the fall is quickly approaching, and we're on kind of our last, our last common struggles message for today. So I just want to kind of give you guys a heads up as we're as we're moving to the moving to the fall. Um, next week, Chet's going to teach again. Um, I'm actually changing things up. I'm going to be here. So, no pressure, Chet. I'll be critiquing you. Just kidding. Um, I'll be here, and, but Chet's going to fill in. That's going to be a, a sweet help, and we're always uh, love to hear from him. And then after Chet uh, teaches, the following Sunday, Rich is going to be back up and is going to kind of prep us for all the students that are coming. He's going to teach a message on hospitality and just kind of get our gears turning for, uh, for the next Sunday. And then the, next, the following Sunday is everybody's back. So um, it's, it's, it's coming up quick. So we're going to kind of get, get our minds in the game and, and get ready for that. I know we're going to have a leaders meeting this week, kind of prepping, um, prepping for that. So looking forward to it. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's finish up this Common Struggle series. How about it? We're on uh, part two of our teaching on comparison. So we've been looking at, at these, these things we've called. If you're new this, today, we've been looking at these Common struggles is what we've been calling it over the summer, and we're just dialing in on a, on a few things. We have, it's not been comprehensive; it's just been a few things that um, I've really wanted to explore a little bit more and just try to get a little bit more clarity on, as far as how I would teach and articulate these things. And so we've looked at at depression, and we've looked at anxiety, and then lastly we've looked at this issue that we've described as comparison, or you could also say this 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 issue of self-image. Um, and so we set it up last week. We really got our minds around what, what these things are, how we kind of 
are so tempted to sinfully compare, to look at what others have or what we don't have and feel inferior or whatever that is. And uh, so we won't do a ton of review there. We're going to jump right in. We've got a lot to cover today. And uh, last week we looked at understanding it. This week we're going to look at how do we battle this, this sinful comparison that we often struggle with. And as we wade in here, just kind of as an introduction, I've tried to sort of put press pause in each of these things and show you there's a way that the culture tries to assess and address these issues. That's the way they assess and address depression and anxiety. And the same, same thing with comparison. And the Proverbs warn us uh, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it is the way to death, right? So the culture, unbelieving culture, can maybe assess an issue, and it might seem right to them, okay, this is, this is what's going on, here's the, here's the root issue, but oftentimes they are mistaken, and in the end, is the way to death. And so... People are deceived, and that means that all the time they're going to be making wrong assessments of our most fundamental problem. So when the culture starts telling us why we compare and then what's going on, we've got to think really carefully about that and kind of understand what, what we're being told here. So let's look, just as we're getting into this, this lesson on battling comparison, let's look at a couple of these most common, you might call them assessments and solutions that the culture gives to us. All right, for starters, the culture says that we, we compare ourselves against others and we feel inferior because we have a poor self-image. Okay, you can write that down, a poor self-image. I don't have it on the screen. A poor self-image. Self-image just meaning the mental picture that you have of yourself. Right, that kind of mental assessment, that snapshot, that how you conceive of yourself. <clears throat> when you have a poor self-image says the culture, you think of yourself too lowly, right, or inaccurately. And so what's the solution? Sometimes people will say, you know, you just have to accept yourself as you are, right? Just, just accept yourself. But in reality, if you read the articles that are just kind of floating around on the Internet, it's more like, you know, <laughs> accept the good parts of who you are and uh, work on the bad parts. I mean, that's really what it ends up being, the, the, all the six, seven steps to, to enhance your self-image. Accept yourself and recreate yourself in some sense. Or you might hear people say, you know, you struggle with self-doubt, right? Self-doubt is another, another label that, that floats around there. And that's pretty self-explanatory. It means you doubt yourself, right? You doubt your abilities, your inherent worth. So, if you have self-doubt, you need a little more self-what? Confidence, or we could put it in religious terms, self-faith, right? You need to believe in yourself. You need to believe in yourself a little more. You can do it. You're great. You're loved, etc. So let's build you up a little bit so you can believe in yourself a little more and then overcome that self-doubt. You might also hear people talk about having an inferiority complex. Have you ever heard of that? How many of you have heard of that? I'm just curious. Okay. 70%. An inferiority complex. And that just means that you feel inferior to everybody all the time. Um, 
or probably more in our vocabulary, we, we say that we feel insecure. That's probably more common, insecure. And it just means we lack security in ourselves. Right? We're insecure. We lack security. And the solution here, then, is to find, to find security or to use someone to help you have security. You know, a friend, a spouse, a parent, God. So inferiority complex, insecurity. Probably one of the more common things that we hear and, and we often believe, even in Christian circles, is that we have low self-esteem. Low self-esteem. And so that's why we compare, because we, we, we feel low about ourselves, meaning we don't, we don't esteem ourselves highly enough. We need to realize we are of, quote, infinite worth. I was reading a lot this week on that, and a lot of Christians will say that, will use that language, infinite worth. And the way this usually goes is that we're told that until we esteem ourselves, we cannot esteem others. Until we esteem ourselves, we cannot esteem others, is what we're told. Until our needs are met, we can't meet others' needs. And so the solution is to value yourself more, esteem yourself more highly, stroke your ego. And then that bleeds into something else that's a common culprit for our comparisons. And that's that you don't love yourself enough. You don't love yourself enough. You need more self-love, in other words. I know that sounds a little crazy. Um, but it's what a whole lot of Christians believe. Some are even taught in counseling that you can't truly love God or other people until you first learn to love yourself. And I heard somebody say recently in counseling, you know, how can I be a good wife to my husband unless my needs are met first? So there it is. That's that incipient like, I need my needs met. I need, to, I need to love myself, care for myself. I need to self-care before I can actually care for the needs of others. And so the problem with all of these is that self is the fixed reference point and not God. Right? It's all revolving around you, around yourself. You the reference point and not the triune God. The culture tells us to look within, to accept who we are as we are, and then to esteem ourselves by our own standards. And that's a deceived assessment and a deceived solution. So if we shouldn't take the culture's explanations for why we compare, if we shouldn't take their own assessments and the solutions about our self-image and who we are, what assessment should we take? Not a trick question. God's assessment. Right? Scripture's assessment. So that's what we're going to go today. We're going to, we're going to look at some fundamental truths to help us battle this sinful comparison. Okay? I had a number of ways I could go with this lesson, but I, I chose this, this route. I'm just going to give you kind of a framework for how you can think about yourself according to Scripture, and I think as it relates to the temptation to compare. Right? So we remember last time when we jumped in here, we, we ended last last week's message with John 21, where Jesus tells Peter, as Peter was looking over his shoulder about John, what are you know, you told me how I'm going to die, Lord, how's he going to die? And then Jesus said, well, if, you want, if I want him to remain until I return, what is that to you? You follow me. So Jesus isolates, says, hey, you don't worry about him. That's his story that I'm writing for him. You worry about you, 
and you follow me. That's your, that's your, that's your one responsibility. So that's, everything is going to kind of come back to that. So if you kind of feel overwhelmed, you just earmark John 21 in your Bible and uh, just make that, just come back to that over and over again. But this is sort of a, a framework. These truths are a framework that are going to help us battle sinful comparison and also think biblically about ourselves. All right? Um, so, number one, we could say, uh, start where Scripture starts, that I am created in the image of God. Number one truth. If you think about, okay, how do I think about myself? You need to start with the, the reality that you are an image bearer. You are an image bearer. You have been created in the image of God. Now, I know that sounds pretty basic, but there's some really uh, important things to kind of observe here about who we are. That's our, that's our number one fixed reference point, is God. We, we exist because God made us, and if there's any value in a human, it's derived from God. Because we're made in his image. So if you would, open your Bibles to Genesis 128. Familiar territory here. Genesis 128. We'll really pick it up in, we'll pick it up in 26 here. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And it goes on, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the point here, I'm not just going to give a full-on exposition of this passage. I'm just drawing your attention to the fact that from the get-go, we understand our our kind of place in the universe. We are created. We're created by God. We're created as the the pinnacle, at least, of the terrestrial beings, as we'll see in a minute. Um, It says we're, Psalm 8 says we're a little lower than the angels. But we're the sort of the crown of God's earthly creation. And that's because... Not because our flesh and bones and blood veins and and brains and all those things. It's because we image someone of infinite worth. We are an image of the Creator Himself, of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. We're like a reflection, a billboard of who He is and what He is like to the world around us. And so there's lots of things we could talk about, about being an image and, and how we image. But one of the things, we're, we're created in his image, so we reflect the triune God. And then we are tasked with his noble mission, right? So humans have the responsibility here to take dominion over the earth that God created. He put us in charge. Underneath him, he put us in charge of all the created order. And so we are tasked with this noble mission, this take dominion is kingship language. So there is an inherent dignity both in the fact that we are created in God's image, we reflect him, and in the task that he's given us to reign on his behalf over the created order. So Psalm 8 picks this up, so you can flip over to Psalm 8 as well. Again, just trying to give you some some texts here. 
to kind of earmark and show you, okay, how do I think about this idea that I'm created in God's image? Psalm 8, we see here that David is reflecting on, I think, these passages. And he says in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the Lord's being esteemed, not man. Okay, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him, listen to this language, crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So the, the, Lord, or the, or the Lord through David here describes man as, okay, he's not God, right? So there's, man's little compared to the universe and God and, and all those things. So who is man that you're mindful of him, son of man that you care for him? Yet, there is a dignity in mankind. You've crowned him with glory and honor, in particularly with the relationship with, with what we've been tasked to do, with the dominion over the works of your hands, says David. So, what do we do with this? Are we valuable as humans? What would you say? Yes. Are we of infinite worth? No. It's very fixed, isn't it? We're not even intrinsically valuable from that standpoint. Like, it's not that the matter that we're made of is of value, right? It, we're value, our worth and value as people come from the one in whose image we are made. We resemble him. As one author put it, we are God-stamped creatures. We, and we're tasked with a noble and a glorious mission. So this is kind of hard to get around. Okay, well, I don't have inherent worth, but I, I'm, I, there is a, there's a value that I have because I'm created in God's image. Just think about this. Think about the kind of the illustration of a painting. All right, I could paint something with oil-based paints. I could paint the exact same picture as uh, da Vinci, right? Which one's more valuable? Da Vinci's painting, like $500 million valuable. Okay, versus mine. You're not going to pay $2 for mine, right? But it could be the exact same picture. We could paint the exact same thing. And even if I was a great artist in terms of like I had skills and I could basically mirror the Da Vinci painting, the art doesn't have the same inherent value. Why? Because it's not created by Da Vinci, right? It has to do with the painter, the artist, so, and I couldn't give mine away, but Da Vinci could sell his for $500 million if he was alive today. The art doesn't have inherent value. It doesn't have value from the oils or the canvas or whatever it is. The value comes from the one who created it. And so I think that's helpful for us as we're kind of getting our bearings here, thinking about value and, and where the value comes from. So yes, 
Do we have value as human beings? We certainly have value because we are created in the image of God. But once you sever that, once you start, once the culture is running around looking for inherent value within the human being, they don't really have any ground to stand on. So just, that's one block, okay? We're going to put that block right there, and we're going to move on to the next, the next kind of foundational truth here. Although we are created in God's image, you know where this is going, we are sinners worthy of judgment. You can think of yourself as a sinner and worthy of judgment. Now, I know you guys know this, but I want to take some time and work this out for us, especially in light of this temptation that we all face toward esteeming ourselves or thinking that the answer is to think more highly of ourselves. Over in Romans chapter 1, so you can just jot that down, Romans chapter 1, Paul says at the fall, we exchanged the glory of God that we once possessed for images. Okay? We exchanged the glory of God. So we had, we had God's very glory, like Psalm 8 talks about, crowned with glory and honor. We had this glory pre-fall. The most glorious, uh, the most glorious creatures ever created. We had this glory because we resembled God, we're made in his image. And Paul says here, we exchange that glory for the idolatry, for these images that we worship. In other words, we have become deceived idolaters, and we've become targets of God's wrath. And to exchange this glory for these images, to worship the creature versus the creator, is the height of human folly. And it's interesting because it's almost as though sin makes us subhuman. Okay? Probably a new idea for some people. I'm not saying we are subhuman. I'm saying it's, it's as though sinful humanity is sort of operating below what we were intended to be. It's, it's almost like it makes us like beasts. And I say that because again and again in Scripture, the biblical authors will compare fallen humanity in its pride, thinking that we're something, as no better than the animals. Right? No better than the animals. You probably don't have to think very hard to think of some examples, right? What's probably the most dramatic example of when a a human actually started acting like an animal? Nebuchadnezzar. Yes. I mean, think about that. Here's a human king. He's at the height of his kingdom. God has raised him up. He has dominion over everything, is what the actual, actually the language says, that God's done this. He's raised up Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar starts thinking highly of himself. God warns him in a vision that he's going to do this to him if he, if he continues on in his pride. He's initially rattled by this vision, but apparently it doesn't stick, because one day he's kind of walking around, looking out at his kingdom, thinking to himself of how great he is and what he has accomplished, And then a voice from heaven just kind of cracks down and is like, all right, like, time's up. Should have repented, should have cultivated humility, but you didn't, so I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to humble those who walk in pride. So God literally, it says, removes the mind of a man from him, kind of makes him go insane, and he sends him out into the field. He starts eating grass like an animal. And then the language continues in Daniel, and it says that, he grew, his, his fingernails grew long like the claws of a bird. And his hair grew long, and it compares it to these feathers of an animal. It's just, it's like he became an animal. 
He became subhuman. That which he was supposed to have dominion over, the beast of the field, he's now become one of. So what's the point of that? Our pride, our sin, strips humans of our God-derived glory and makes us like brutish animals. Psalm 32 is another good example of this. David says, he's talking about his own folly whenever he hid his sin, and then he repents and he comes clean and comes out of it, and then he's, he exhorts the audience to say, don't be like a mule, right? Don't be like an animal that's stubborn and it's without understanding that the Lord has to jerk around because they won't listen. Again, just, you, you just kind of see this theme throughout Scripture. And so this idea of okay, losing this glory, this exchange of glory, this exchange of our, our glory in our God, our, this, this glory we've derived from God, this is why Paul goes on to say in Romans 3 that we fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. Literally, we lack God's glory. That's how you could translate that. All have sinned and lack God's glory. So you see that again. Sin equals a lack of glory. So we're still image bearers. Point number one, yes, we're still created in the image of God, but we are fundamentally broken. So I was trying to think about it. It's like a light bulb, right? Like a light bulb that's broken. It's burned out. So it's still in the shape of a bulb, but it's not, it's not performing its function. It's not lighting. It's, 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 you just need to unscrew it, throw it away, get a new one. We're still image bearers, but we are broken. And now Paul doesn't sugarcoat this either in Ephesians. It's vitally important that we understand our desperate condition, our unworthiness. I made up a new word here. Our inesteemability. Okay? Brand new word. Probably sound like a foolish person, but inesteemability. We are inesteemable. Paul says in chapter 2 that we were dead in our sins. Not sick, dead. He says that we were a follower of Satan, the second verse. And then he says we were a child of wrath in the third verse. That is not good for my self-esteem. Later, he reminds me that all unbelievers in chapter 4 are completely darkened in their inner man. The most important part of them just lights off. No understanding. My old self is completely deceived and corrupt, and it needs to be trashed altogether. Ephesians 4.22. And this means, then, that my default status as a sinful image bearer, my default status is to think I know better than God, and to think I can make a go at my life without him to be my own God, to worship and love and serve myself. That's the essence of being a fallen human. The Bible describes this fallen humanity as lovers of self in 2 Timothy 3.2, and that is not good. It's listed as a judgment, or a, a, a trait that's worthy of judgment in 2 Timothy 3.2. It's listed alongside of other traits like being lovers of money, proud, Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, the list goes on. Right? Not flattering. Self-love is not a good thing. Being a lover of self means I already love myself too much. I already think too highly of myself. I am preoccupied with myself and my needs. And so I relentlessly compare because I am self-obsessed. 
what we talked about last time. More self-obsession won't fix self-obsession. Tracking? It's a black hole. Instead, Scripture calls me to acknowledge my sin, to acknowledge my unworthiness with clarity and specificity. Scripture calls me to repudiate myself and not to esteem myself more. Think about this example from the life of Job. When Job encountered God at the end of that book, do you know what happened? Job, this righteous man, he's described as a righteous man in the opening chapters of Job. Walking with the Lord, blameless, encounters tremendous suffering, more than probably any of us have ever experienced or will ever experience. You kind of resonate with some of his grievances toward the Lord, you know, through the book. Then the Lord shows up, challenges Job in his creatureliness versus God being the creator. And here's what Job says in Job 42.6. Job sees his sin clearly and he says, I despise myself. I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Job 42.6. That is the perfect response from a fallen image bearer. Not trying to find our self-worth, but despising ourselves because of our sin and repenting. And in fact, did you know that this is one of the hallmarks of the new covenant? Of this, we call it self-repudiation. Listen to Ezekiel 36. You can write that down, Ezekiel 36. This is the, that great chapter where God promises to give his people new hearts and a new covenant. Listen to what he says will happen in verse 31. He says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And listen to this. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. Now notice this, it is not for your sake that I will act. In other words, I'm not esteeming you. I don't see anything good in you. It's not why I'm acting, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. They'll loathe themselves because of their sin, not esteem themselves if they're in the new covenant. That's going to be a sign that the new covenant has come, that he just said earlier in chapter 36, he's going to give them new hearts, he's going to restore them, he's going to bless their socks off, forgive their sins, all these things. And they're going to load themselves, not esteem themselves. And God makes sure to underscore that the salvation he brings is not because of anything inherent in them. They are not worthy of it in any sense. Shame over their sin is appropriate since it will drive them to genuine repentance and to God's mercy. All right? That means we need a lower self-image, not a higher one. Tracking? But the glorious news is that our great God did act. He did fulfill Ezekiel 36. And in his overwhelming mercy and his love, he sent his son as the payment for our sin. And it's not because he looked down and saw us worthy of redemption. It's quite the opposite. Because we were so unworthy, 
He saved us. That's what magnifies the depths of his grace in Ephesians 2. So he, Paul tells, he calls us dead in sin, followers of Satan, children of wrath, to magnify the mercy of God. That there wasn't anything inherent in us. God did it out of his own mercy, out of his own self, his own um, bowels of compassion for us. It magnifies the depths of his grace. And that means then that I've got to know, not just that I'm a sinner, but that I have a renewed nature in Christ. That I am fully redeemed in Jesus. And that part of that benefits package is he has given me a renewed self. A new nature and a renewed purpose. When you finish writing that, you can turn over to Colossians 3.10. We've been here in Sunday mornings with Pastor Brian. So again, I'm trying to piggyback on as much text that's already kind of in your minds. Except for Ezekiel 36. That probably wasn't in your mind this week. But Colossians 3. We've been redeemed in Christ. We have a new nature given to us in Him. 3.10, kind of right in the middle of this section where, where um, Paul is exhorting us. You know, he's talking about in, over, up in chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1, we've been raised with Christ. So we should seek the things that are above where Christ is. And then if you drop down in verse 9, he says, Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self. It's already happened with its practices. And you've put on the new self. So at your conversion, in one sense, you've already put on the new self. You've been given this new nature in Christ. We were in Romans 6. That's another, another crucial text on this. We've been given this new nature. When we came to believe in Christ, as we owned our sinful condition and entrusted ourselves to the Savior, the Scriptures say we were incorporated into Christ, meaning we were joined to Him. We received all the benefits of his life and death as though they were ours. We received his righteous record. Our sins are forgiven. Or in this case, he says we put on Christ. And what comes with it is what the Bible describes as the new self or a renewed nature. We put on the new self. But get this, guys. It's not that Christ makes us worthy so that we can esteem ourselves and think highly of ourselves. It's that Christ is worthy and we are able to think highly of Him and esteem Him. Does that make sense? I think a lot, that a lot of the way this creeps in, especially in um, probably the liberty circles and in a lot of the CCM stuff, is that God exists sort of to make you worthy. You know, and you'll hear it. You'll hear the mantra, you're loved, you're special, you're valued, you're beautiful, you're this. And it's just like on the radio. And all the Christian songs, not all of them, but many of the Christian, kind of popular Christian songs are just kind of stroking the ego, right? God exists to make you kind of secure and, and, and to increase your value. And it's subtle here because, you know, we can begin to think, okay, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm insecure, I feel this way, so my, I need 
I need to focus on my identity in Christ. And I would say, yeah, you do. But we've got to get that order right, right? So it's, it's about God and his purposes and not me and making myself great. That's a way that this sort of has, has back-ended here into the church. He is restoring our nobility and glory and dignity that we lost in the fall, yes. But Christ gives us a new nature so that we can die to ourselves. Right? Not so that we can sort of sit self-satisfied and, and feel worthy and all these things. And declare to ourselves, I am worthy, I am worthy. If we're saying anything, we're saying, I and myself am unworthy. Christ is worthy. And because he's loved me, because he's given me a new nature, I have a new capacity now to die to myself and actually serve others in meaningful ways. All right? That's our third pillar here. Number four, I'm being renewed in Christ to die to self and to live a new life, what we just talked about. So not only am I, do I have a renewed nature already, but I'm progressively learning to live out that new nature. I'm being renewed in Christ to die to self and to live a new life. And again, right here we see this in Colossians 3.10. It says, we put on the new self, which is currently in process of being renewed in knowledge, notice this, after the image of its creator. Very helpful there, because Christ is redeeming us and restoring us back into the image of God, back into the image in point number one that we were created to be in the first place. And he's transforming us in Christ to, to, die, to, to die to self and to live a new life in him. It's going to reflect God more and more. And this means then, when it comes to, as we kind of bring it back around to comparison, we're going to start really getting it practical now. Like, this means that, you know, it kind of confronts the whole just like, let yourself be, just accept yourself as you are kind of thing. It's like, no, this, this should create a dissatisfaction, a I want to strive to be more like Christ in us. Not a like, oh, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to let my mess hang out and just be okay with my mess, you know, and, and, and not worry about that. This reality, this truth is like, okay, no, because I have a renewed nature in Christ, because he has saved me, now I'm going to expend effort and energy into changing. It means you're not static. It means you're not bound to absolutely everything. Like, I can't ever change, right? I'm just always going to be this way. Now, you can't become whatever you want, like the culture would say at different times, but you can change and improve by hard work and the power of the Spirit. And that's very, very hopeful. And this also helps us remember that this change is progressive, right? This doesn't happen all at once. So sometimes we're really tempted to like look over our shoulder and compare ourselves to that mature person over there. We talked about that last week. Look at that person, wish they had their maturity, you know, but we're just right here and we feel inferior and less than. But it's, the reality is this is where God has you. He's growing you at this rate as you expend energy and all those things. But he's, you're here and that's where he has you. So trusting the Lord in that, um, level of maturity is helpful even to see this. Okay, I'm being currently renewed in Christ to die to self and to live a new life. All right, let's keep moving here. Another foundational truth here is I'm intentionally made for the days that God has planned for me. So we sort of put the theology in place here with the being created and then sort of re renewed in Christ 
into the, to the image of God. Now I'm going to get more specific. I'm inherently, I mean, I'm, I'm intentionally made, I'm intentionally created for the particular days that God has planned for me. Sorry about that. So flip over to Psalm 139. It's a sweet psalm where David's talking about how the Lord knows him intimately and is with him at all times and all places. Psalm 139, and down in verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So what's David saying here? David's saying that, I mean, the intimate language here is astounding. Right? God's coming in and he's, he's forming David's inner man. He's knitting David together. He's weaving him together in the womb. He's fearfully and wonderfully made. His frame's not hidden from the Lord. The Lord knows. The Lord's creating him. He's being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I mean, you hear this language of intimacy and detail. And I think where it's going here is to show, show us, your eyes saw my unformed substance, verse 16, and then he says, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. So not only is he forming David, did he form David specifically and individually, he also formed the days that David was going to be fitted for and to. Does that make sense? So it's this intimate um, intentionality. And for us to understand, we were made, in all of our strengths and limitations, we were made for the days that God created for us to live out. So, how does this text help us in our comparisons? Well, it helps us realize that, that, that there are things that we cannot change about ourselves, appearance, physical things, you know, other, you know, whatever. And this is, we've been intricately formed by God. So whenever we're discontent about aspects of these kinds of things, we're actually rebuking the Lord for how he's fashioned us. I'm not talking about sinful things or even things like your health that you can improve, right? I'm talking about things you, that are fixed, ways that God's fashioned you, even strengths and idiosyncrasies just that, that are kind of unique to you, your gender, other things. Like, God has fashioned you, and he's fashioned you intimately, individually, for these particular days that you're living in. In all these things, both your strengths and limitations, they're from the Lord. And that means we can rest in the fact that God has designed me in particular for the days he's already planned for me. That I'm fashioned for these days to accomplish what he's called me to accomplish. And this frees us from the enslavement of comparison, you know, like looking over our shoulder and thinking, I've got to be like that guy, or I need to be more like this person to be happy or fulfilled or live a, live a life that's going to be fruitful to the Lord. That's just not... That's not the reality. Again, Jesus' words ring true. What is that to you? What is this person to you? You follow me. I have fashioned you exactly as I have intended. 
And then add to that that we're providentially placed in Acts 17. Paul talks about this as he's evangelizing those folks in Athens. For the sake of time, I'm not going to go there, but he, you can write the reference down. He's basically saying, hey, look, we were all created from one man. And then all these families of the earth kind of filled the earth, and God actually fixed the place of their dwellings. Meaning he positioned the nations and the families and the different lines were drawn and the time frames of when these people were going to exist, when they weren't going to exist. He's fashioned all that. Why is that important? Because so many times we feel insecure about heritage, upbringing. You know, wish I was raised in a Christian home. I don't have any of this background. You know, I just, I'm, I'm playing catch-up ball. Or the kids are in a Christian home. You know, it's just like, wow, I don't really have this wild testimony that I it just seem to kind of take things for granted. And, I mean, it's just, you, there's no end to the, to the level of comparisons we can make about these things. I wish I was a different ethnicity. I wish I had parents who discipled me better. I wish, you know, the, I wish they invested in me more. All of these things, Acts 17 says, were ordained by a good God, even the most painful experiences that we have, to bring us to himself and to prepare you for what he's called you to. He made no mistakes in your past. They, people may have meant things for evil in your life, but God meant them for good. He planned them. That's the language. People made plans, evil plans, to harm you, and God planned these things for good. Genesis 50. This is a giant call in our comparisons to trust the Lord in these things and to follow him. So finally, this is the last one. We talked about this at length last, last year, so I'm, I'm just going to read it and be done. Well, we've got to remember that we're gifted and empowered by the Spirit for the good works that He's prepared for me. So very similar to number five there, that we're intentionally made. But beyond just our, our, our creation, that God's created us intentionally for these things, He's also gifted us spiritually with the Spirit's power and unique gifts for every single one of us to accomplish all the good works that He's prepared for us walk in, Ephesians 2.10-4.7. So these truths, when they begin to settle in on your heart, they're going to liberate you from this, this rat race of comparing yourself to other people all around you. It's going to get your eyes focused back on Christ, back on his, his, you know, his love for you, His command to follow me. You know, What is that to you? Don't worry about these other people. You follow me. As we, as we finish up here, you know, I could have gone a direction of, okay, helping you walk step by step through the battle of comparison. Um, but it's basically the same thing that we've been talking about in these other messages. You know, you want to pinpoint the specific temptations that you're facing. Okay, when are you tempted to compare? So you pinpoint those temptations. Pick one of them that's most destructive to you and then begin to unpack those particular lies. What's that real going in your mind? What are you saying to yourself? And then evaluate those thoughts with the truth. And then begin to yield your will to Christ in a new obedience. Begin to deny yourself in following Christ and not esteem yourself. And that's, that's the gist of kind of where we're headed. I'm sure that raised a lot of other questions. You know, we probably could have spent like five or six weeks on this. <laughs> but uh, we're done. So we can chat as much as you want in, in weeks to come about these things. All right, let's pray. Father, we are grateful uh, just for the clarity of your word. We're thankful for the great love.
that you have for us in Christ and in spite of what we were and what, what we'd become in the fall, um, you came to us, condescended in love, and redeemed us and are now in the process of restoring us into the image of Christ. We are humbled. We're thankful. Uh, we're just so grateful for your shepherding care. We pray that you would help us internalize these things and live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.